Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. We are about to have a conversation that I've been wanting to have on this show for a long time. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson joins us. His latest book is Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. And he is one of our leading astrophysicists. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History. He's been hosting uh, Nova Science Now. Uh, and uh, and is a man that Bill Maher just loves to have on the air. Uh, Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me on the show. He does love you, doesn't he? <laughs> well, I've been on three times within 14 months. Well, I maybe, guess, that's, maybe I've just watched only three times then. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I've been on uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert more than uh-huh. the times I've been on Bill Maher. So the difference is on Bill Maher, he repeats the show every day of the week. Right. That it, after the, uh, the show is cut. And so... I think every subscriber to HBO ends up coming across it at one time of day or another. <laughs> so we're here to talk about this book and many other things with uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, you don't have to limit to the book. Just anything in the universe is fine. That's f- well, that's good. Because that's, that leaves us <laughs> a lot of room, man. <laughs> I don't want to constrict you or anything. Really? But, you know, I was getting uh, worried for a while. So it's just good. <laughs> the book is a piece of me, you know, but there's more where that came from. <laughs> Well, there's so much here. I, you know, I was um, one of the things just to, to, to introduce our listeners, many of whom know who you are, and some may not. Um, that just to go back for a moment. I mean, as a young man, as a kid growing up in New York City, I, I read this piece um, about you once, uh, of being a young man in New York, very athletic, really good at athletic prowess. And especially as a young black man in, in, in New York City, many people said, you should play basketball. Don't worry about astrophysics. astrophysics. Yeah, yeah, no one had. It, they weren't <laughs> thinking in the way I was thinking. They, I, I, I think it was a cultural bias that perhaps they weren't even self-aware of because they were only recommending professions for me where other people of my skin color had already been seen and established. And that did not include science. It did not, especially didn't include astrophysics. So they see I could you know, play basketball. Oh, you should, you know, get a basketball scholarship and do <laughs> basketball. Or res- I wrestled as well. Yeah, you should get. And, and no one was thinking, you know, and I stayed after school for the physics club. And they're saying, oh, you should do this. You know, no one was, nobody was thinking that way. And so I had to, a lot of the, the initiative was self-driven. It was not, there were no teachers saying, oh, he'll go far, or he'll succeed, or he, it just never happened. So now, what, what was it that brought you, that, that, this passion for astronomy, for physics, where, where well, that came I, from? I think I didn't choose it. I think it chose me. I was, I was nine years old at first visit to my local planetarium, which in New York is the Hayden Planetarium. Which is now your planetarium. Well, not my. Well, you know what I mean. I, I mean, you, I, right. I'm head of it, but it's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm temporary caretaker of you're, you're, right. the New York treasure. There you and go. And <clears throat> the, the, uh, it would take a few years, a couple of years, you know, a view of the moon through binoculars that a friend of mine shared with me. And confirmation by uh, in a trip to Pennsylvania that the sky that I saw in New York City's Hayden Planetarium was actually real. <laughs> I was pretty sure that it was a hoax when I first saw it because I grew up in the Bronx and I knew how many stars there were in the night sky. There was about a dozen, no more than a dozen. Right. So once I confirmed that and, and, had a, and got to think about it a little longer, by the age 11, if you had asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I'd just simply flat out tell you astrophysicist. 
And usually the adults would turn around and walk away at that point. <laughs> <laughs> there was very, very little rejoinder that they could bring to that. But, but that I was, I was good to go from then on. And, and it was so deep within me that I'm pretty sure the universe chose me. Well, I'm glad they did. And by the way, the lines were open. We'll get to these calls. Jerry and Mary, uh, you are the first to call us up. We have folks who have logged on to Mark Steiner and the Mark Steiner Show page on Facebook and who have written in uh, to steinershowgmail.com. We'll get to those emails as well uh, for uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So we'll get to you in just a minute. We'll throw a question in and go back and forth with your questions and mine. Um, I-, I love the way you begin the book because you really talk about the political struggle around, around NASA and around space travel and around studying um, the universe. Uh, and I, there's one line here I just love when you, we, how the coverage of this Obama speech at the Kennedy Space Center, you said the supporter press had headlines saying Obama sets sights on Mars, and those who don't like him said Obama kills the space program. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thanks for noticing that opening chapter. It's called Space Politics. I just took off the gloves and went bare-fisted on that one. I just had to call it all as I saw it. And my great lament is not that there's politics in the space program. Of course, there's always politics. There's politics everywhere. It's that I, I began to notice partisan politics. And if, you know, there's no hope of any conversion funding if you have partisan bickering over what the mission statement of an agency should be. An agency that historically had not, not even been bipartisan, it was nonpartisan over, over its many years. And so it didn't matter to people that Kennedy launched Apollo, but... Nixon's signature was on the moon, and Nixon had the first phone call. You know, there was a, there was a, this is an American mission, not a Republican or Democratic mission. So uh, I've, so I, so that first chapter just calls it all out, as I saw it. And the, the partisan press just looked through the lens that they carried with them <laughs> and gave you two completely different views of the same speech. But now your lens is interesting, because you, after this book came out, you testified before Congress. You have your own very serious views about um, this administration and other people in government having really kind of a lack of vision about what needs to be done. And, and so you're very clear about this. Yeah, very clear. And it's not that there isn't vision. Uh, there, the Obama administration has vision. But the vision is of the kind where you say, well, yeah, I want to go to Mars. He said this in a speech. All right, right. So there are plans to go to Mars. And there are plans to return to the space station, and this time with uh, a, a, part, a government um, industry partnership, and I don't have a problem with that either, uh, with private industry participating in this adventure. I don't have a problem with that. But when he say we're going to go to Mars, I say when? Oh, mid 2030s. So what? So wait a minute. That's under the watch of a president to be named later, on a budget not yet established. So what does it mean for a president to promise something that they don't have to actually invest in? In the 1960s, when Kennedy gave his famous moon speech, he said we'll go to the moon before the decade is out. Had he served two terms, we basically would have gone to the moon under his watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a delay with the Apollo 1 fire of, of almost two years of launches. And uh, so, so had things gone well, we would have – so his political capital and his sort of investment in that mission statement would have been available to carry it through to the end. And it was nonetheless carried through uh, on his legacy – but to promise something that won't happen for another 22 years, you know, I, 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 I'm not convinced that, it, that that's a meaningful promise. And by then, you know, Obama's going to be in, in the beaches of Hawaii by then, <laughs> as he should be. But, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
Well, one oh, by the way, another 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 cross blame was was of course the shuttle ended under Obama, right? And so everyone's right. blaming him for killing the spa- space program. But of course, the calling for the end of the shuttle began under Bush. Bush called for the end of the shuttle. But the Obama haters couldn't look back in five years in time to notice this. Right. It was all, it's all Obama's fault. <laughs> it's all Obama's fault. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, right. But, you know, I was thinking about that and something else. A little line in the book, almost a throwaway, but it really wasn't. When I was looking at the New York Times a photograph of um, the shuttle being carried on the back of the, the Boeing 747, I suppose, whatever that was, uh, flying the, the, the shuttle to be housed. Uh, so people could look at it, and then you—it's you, permanent rest home. Permanent yeah. rest home. You—you <laughs> you wrote. It was one line in the book. I can't remember where it is. I don't have it online, but it was something about uh, in, when the space when, when we when we went to space between uh, the Russians and the Americans. There were two countries that were in space, and and now there's still two countries in space, but we're not one of them. That's correct. That's correct. And so in the 1960s, Soviet Union and United States were the two spacefaring nations of the world. Spacefaring defined by the ability to launch humans into orbit and beyond. There's still there's still two spacefaring nations now, but one of them is not America. It's Russia and China. That's right. And so uh, in mm. uh, the book, I, there are tweets in the book. Yes, the book I know. Is, yes, is, is, are all of, it's every thought I've ever had about our past, present, and future in space, and that includes a few dozen tweets that um, I don't know if, if how many of your listeners are in the Twitterverse, but it's a it's a way to just put a a, a, a thought morsel out there and uh, some people say oh i'm in the park now or i'm going to see harry potter now and i don't do that <laughs> <laughs> i don't have time patience interest and i and and if you're interested in my doing that i don't that i don't i'm not interested in you so i'm an educator <laughs> i'm a scientist and so i put out there perspectives that morsels of perspectives that i hope offer you different views on on the operations of culture and its intersection with science an example when the last shuttle came in for a landing uh, people were shed a tear and there was people saying oh end of an era and and i said no you're not shedding a tear because it's the last shuttle because people are not even in touch with their own emotions right i accuse them of not knowing why they're crying and i'll tell you why they're not they're crying because there's not another vehicle on an adjacent launch pad ready to continue that adventure. Nobody shed a tear at the end of the Gemini missions because the mighty Saturn V rocket was right next door. Mm-hmm. You said, good riddance, we're done with you, you're little, you're small, you, didn't, you can't get us to the moon, goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> we're ready for the next trip here. And so it's that, it's that sense of... of a mission statement that I think we're missing, and if it were there, nobody would have shed a tear. They said, we, it, "You served us well, shuttle. I salute you. On to the next, to the next challenge." Folks, you can join us here four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. We just lost one caller, Mary. I want you to call back because you were going to tell, tell uh, Doctor Tyson a story about the uh, about how your son has been inspired to go into this world because of him. We want to hear that? Maybe this email. Then we're going to go to the phones. Um, Hi, Mark and Dr. DeGrasse Tyson. This weekend, I attended the second USA Science and Engineering Festival at the D.C. Convention Center. It was a huge, exciting, well-attended free event with many, many demonstrations and experiments for kids of all ages to participate in. However, considering that it was in D.C., Chocolate City, there was a low African-American attendance, minus 10%. This was just the kind of event that we could have sparked young black children's interest in science. I know there are so many potential young geniuses, innovators out there. How can we reach them and develop them when they might lack 
good school programs, adequate lab facilities, and high expectations. Ronda Robinson. Yes, that's, that's an important question. I don't have the silver bullet answer to that, but I'm assuming in the numbers that were in that communication, they're, they're saying about only about 10% were black, whereas uh, whereas Washington, D.C. is, uh, what's the number, 80%? Or well, well, it's less now, but it's high, yes. It's, uh, high. it's high, certainly yeah. 50% at least, right. so the numbers weren't matching. I had a similar experience. I was on a, on a panel at Howard uh, with Richard Dawkins, who's a well-known evolutionary biologist, and of late he has these sort of atheistic tracks. Yes. Um, and so I was on stage with him, not about any of that, but the title of, the, of this conversation was The Poetry of Science. And all we did was talk about the beautiful things in the universe. On the campus of Howard University, on the campus, I would say one out of 20 people in the room was black. Wow. Now, you, you, know, you know, bringing it to the, to the, to the middle... Uh, you can't do more than that, than bring it right into the auditorium in the center of the Howard University's campus. So most of the people came from around the city and around the region. And so, so the, the, your, your, is that an email that you read? Yeah, um, yeah from Rhonda yeah, Robinson, sir, yeah. The, the question is, is an important one. I don't have an easy answer. I don't. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty much as visible as I can be. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, I'm out there. And so uh, my hope is that there's some seeds planted so that there's more of me out there. I don't want to carry this alone. Um, no matter the color of the others, there, it's, there aren't that many people bringing science to the public. And uh, I'd like to think that perhaps there's a, there's a generation lag. You know, if you're the first to go to college, you're not thinking astrophysics. You're not thinking science. You're thinking law, medicine. You're thinking sort of the, the traditional money-earning fields. It's sort of the luxury of, okay, I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from. I'm a kid. I'm not in poverty. And I have the luxury of just looking around and saying, oh, that looks good. Let me, let me poke around at that. And, and, and so these professions that are not shown on television dramas are, are accessible, but they're, not with, they're there, but no one is thinking about them because your, your first concern is can you be financially stable? And you don't know how to be financially stable doing these other exotic fields. But you do know that you can be an accountant, a nurse, a doctor, and any of these other traditional fields. So that's my guess, but I don't claim deep insight there. And it's a problem, and it remains a problem. Uh, and Paul writes in on the Mark Steiner Facebook page. Uh, he writes in, my son had to recite, a, uh, Paul Soroka, my son had to write a poem in his high school this past week. He chose Death by Black Hole, written by Neil deGrasse Tyson. So take that, Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent, excellent. The title of my a book, a couple of books ago, Death by Black Hole. In between Death by Black Hole and the space book was the book on, on, on Pluto, the Pluto Files, where I chronicle right. all the, the hate mail that I got from angry third graders for being an accessory <laughs> in the demotion of Pluto. Uh, but I'm pleased that, that that's getting out there. And, of course, there are YouTube clips uh, of me saying a lot of this. Uh, so I'm, I don't think I'm inaccessible. I think I'm there. And so, uh, so now we need parents who will guide their kids. And, and maybe there's a parent education plan that needs to be put into place for this. I want to open the phones here. Jerry, Clarence, Lucas, the next three callers up. The others coming in. We're going to get to all your calls. I promise that. But let me just launch it this way because I want to get to the kind of heart of the, this latest work that you've written just, to, just to, so we can get it out there. Because um, you write that, that space exploration is a necessity. And you look at how, well, when I was a kid in the 60s, science and being a scientist and 
thinking about going into science and, and uh, whether it was astronomy or physics or whatever was something you wanted to do. It was if you were held up in the limelight. Now it's just the opposite. Um, and so now it is true that people have, you have actually there's more access to science today than ever before. In other words, if you decide to channel surf on any given evening, you don't have to go that far or that long before you'll hit a, a network given unto science programming. In the old days, the most you could get was maybe Jacques Cousteau or the, the animal guy, Marlo Perkins. And that wasn't really science. That was more sort of descriptive animal studies, you know. Yeah. Here are the mating habits of the, you know, of the stingray or whatever. So, so, so there's more access to science. The, the difference is, I think, that in the 60s, the moon was the greatest expression of the application of what it is to be scientifically literate. And, of course, it took more than science. It took engineers. It took technologists. It took mathematicians. And everybody knew that. So you couldn't stand up in the 60s and badmouth science because you had no place to stand in order to even express <laughs> yourself that way because everyone would just laugh you down because it was manifest in the weekly headlines what the power of science literacy was doing for our dreams and our ambitions and the world's fair here in new york city was all about tomorrow and who was bringing you that tomorrow the technologists the engineers so that was a very dreamy period and, 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 and layered on top of the bloodiest decades since the civil war in american history with the civil rights movement unfolding weekly on the headlines and mm -hmm. and vietnam a cold war a hot war uh, leaders assassinated the tet offensive in 1968 and yet Nonetheless, people were dreaming, and I don't see that today. But it also has to do with something that happened that you write so eloquently about, which is that we were on a war footing to build a space program, and that's gone, and we've decided that's not where we need to invest in our future. But you insist that we won't have a real future if we don't invest in the space program. Yeah, so that, that there, are three, there are three mixed pieces there, so let me unpack it. Yeah. In the 60s, we went to the moon. We tell ourselves erroneously tell ourselves that we did it because we're explorers or we're discoverers or it's in our DNA or that's what great countries do. But the fact is we were at war. NASA was founded in a war climate. Russia had put up Sputnik, which was a hollowed-out intercontinental ballistic missile, not widely mentioned at the time, but the military folks knew what that meant. The Soviet Union had the new high ground, and this was our sworn enemy, so we had to do something about it. We launched... Uh, pun intended, we launch a new space agency, NASA. It's designated as a civilian space agency. Okay. And by the way, in the book, in the appendix, I have the original documents right. that, that created the agency. You get to see the language that's used. Meanwhile, every astronaut, that all but two of the astronauts we put up are drawn from the military, the military pilots, from the Air Force, from the Navy, and from the Marines. And, and so it's a... You say, well, what's going on here? And then we get to the moon. The space enthusiasts are saying, oh, this is our adventure, and we're on the moon by 1969. <laughs> we'll be at Mars by 1985. And when it was clear that Russia was not, the Soviet Union was not going to Mars, going to the moon, there was no reason for us to continue. So retrospectively, it's obvious why we stopped. Once you put the right causes and effects on the system, today, uh, if if China said they want to put military bases on the on Mars, we're, we're on Mars in ten months. <laughs> <laughs> One month to to fund, design, build, and manufacture the spacecraft, and then.
nine months' journey to get there. Uh, so, of course, we would respond, probably in like ways as we did in the 60s. But I don't want war to be the reason why we do this. Economics is no less a powerful or potent a driver than war. And the promise of economic return, when this great adventure stimulates an innovation culture, an innovation nation, then that, those are the seeds of tomorrow's economies. And that will drag us out of these doldrums we've been in for the past decades. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson is with us. Let's go to the phones, as I promised, um, and I will interject my questions as we go. 410-319-8888 is the number here. His latest book is Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. And Jerry, you're on the air. Yeah, how you doing? Very well, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's very important to talk about science, but I think we have to talk about what fuels science, what takes it to that high level where the universe wants us to be. And I think mathematics, as, at its most highest level, is going to be literally, should be literally, that field to take us there. And as we talk about mathematics and as far as we can go with mathematics, that's not in the, in the mainstream science world. That's not being done in your federal science world either. So I'm saying, I mean, Dr. Tyson, you know, people like him, they ought to be talking about topics like this, topics that... that that are not being talked about. So I'm saying if you want to get, if you want to use science as far as you can go, you have to use that tool. And mathematics is that tool. And um, I, I don't see that being done. That's a really important point, Jerry. Then uh, You do talk about numbers and mathematics a great deal in this book. Yeah, yes, I do. So, so just to, 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 to the caller's point, the caller is 100% correct. Right? Math is fundamental to all of this. And in fact, the new acronym of the of the decade, uh, STEM, the STEM field, science, technology, engineering. That M at the end of STEM stands for mathematics. Right. So it is there when we describe STEM fields, and and it is anytime someone puts funding for science, the math is implicit in what gets funded. So it is there. The the difference. And by the way, mathematics is, as far as we can tell, the language of the universe. You know, you want to go to China and speak to the natives, you learn Chinese. You want to go to the universe and have a, <laughs> converse with the universe, you learn mathematics. And so no doubt about that. We have, uh, to, take a, we have to take a little bit of a break and come right back, uh, and we will, And with Dr. Okay. Neil deGrasse Tyson. The book is Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. Don't go away. We're going to come back and get to our callers. Clarence and Luke is calling in, and other people on Facebook have written in. We'll get to as many as we can. So join us here. Don't go away. Welcome back. I'm Mark Steiner here with Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about his latest work, Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier, and many of the things facing us in the universe, or we'd like to see face us in the universe. I promise to go right to the phones, and I will. Uh, let's who's next up is Clarence. You're on the air. Hey, good, af- good afternoon, Mr. Steiner. Good evening, Mr. Steiner and doctor. Um, How are you? I, I didn't want it. I, I was, this is maybe taking a conversation away from where it, it was, but... Um, if you subscribe in the theory of alchemy, cosmic alchemy, and you're looking at um, um, a, a, a sun, a star that collapses on itself and creates a black, the gravity creates a black hole, and it's sucking in matter all around it, 
Has anybody ever got a theory on where this matter? You cannot destroy energy. You can't create it and you can't destroy it. Has anybody got a theory? Because I've been looking for it on the Internet, a theory as to where this matter and energy is reemerging. And I haven't been able to find anybody that's looking in or hypothesizing on, on that particular part of it. And would you think that if it is reemerging as some kind of dark matter, that maybe that's why the universe seems to be expanding and the furthest reaches are getting further away from us? I, I didn't want to ask that question because, no. you know, uh, thank you. Well, sure, so there. I'm glad you asked the question. It goes right to the heart of a lot of, 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 of what Dr. Tyson thinks about. Go ahead. Yeah, so you, you, you've got a good nose for, for real problems in the universe. So the, first of all, you use the phrase cosmic alchemy. And uh, that's a, a kind of a fun phrase that has been invoked for what goes on in a galaxy where stars manufacture heavy elements right up the periodic table of elements from the lightest to the heaviest. Then they explode, scatter them into the rest of the galaxy, enabling subsequent generations of stars to form with planets that are made of these extra ingredients. And so it's the alchemist's dream, right, because the alchemist wanted to turn one one element into another element they didn't know you couldn't do that on a tabletop but it happens routinely in the centers of stars so the word alchemy is a fun uh, a very applicable term to what's going on there that's different from what goes on in a black hole a black hole just you know you get too close you get sucked in there you have it all understanding of what goes on in a black hole tells us that the matter it gets sucked down to an infinitesimal point in its center we call it the singularity and so you say, how could all this matter take up no volume in the middle? Well, probably can't. We just don't have a theory to understand the singularity. So until we have a theory to understand the singularity, we just say it goes to a singularity. The string theorists think they have an out there. And so we have top people working on uh, merging the physics of a black hole with the physics of a singularity. And that's a frontier subject going on right now. And the solution to that would help us understand what was going on at the moment of the Big Bang as well, when the entire universe was very small. So when you have a lot of mass occupying small volume, this is the job of string theorists. And they're still at it. They're still trying to, they're still scratching their heads. And maybe they're barking up the wrong tree. Uh, we don't know, but they're currently the only game in town. And so, and plus they're not that expensive to support. A computer, a pad, and paper. No, I'll, I'll, I'll carry a string theorist. <laughs> the deep thinkers. And you always need a deep, deep thinker in arm's reach. You, <laughs> so, but you would like to see us do more thinking and acting to get into deep space. Uh, yeah. Oh, by the way, oh, one other point. I'm sorry. I, I should have included. Sure, there sure. was an idea. By the way, the mathematical opposite of a black hole is, is a white hole. And it was, it was suggested that, and it shows up in the equations, and it was suggested that maybe black holes connect to white holes via a wormhole, and so that everything goes into a black hole and comes out the other side. Hmm. So you can, you can predict what a white hole should look like in the universe, and we don't see them. And so that was a brief, fun moment in the late or mid-1970s where that was a suggested idea. So as far as we know, you fall in the black hole. That's where you are. That's you. That's where you stay. <laughs> Let's go back to the phones. I promised to get a couple more calls in here. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Lucas, you're on the air. Uh, hi, uh, hi, hi Mark, and hi Dr. Tyson. My name Hello. is Ray Lucas, and 
I, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the historic moment of Sputnik because I was a part of, of somebody that got swept up in that that, that sent me in a STEM direction, uh, you know, that, that ultimately put me in, in an IT career. Oh, okay, and, so you uh, felt the force. You felt this force directing you to study just those careers that would contribute to that whole adventure. Absolutely, and my frustration, though, is I'm I'm watching all of these Sputnik moments get wasted. <laughs> For example, uh, when 9/11 hit, you know, because you, you talk about Sputnik being kind of uh, in the shadow of of us battling with uh, the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and 9/11 hits, and our leadership tells us to go shopping <laughs> rather than, than tell our kids to study harder. <laughs> you know. <laughs> remember when my daughter was was uh I, I guess in elementary school in the 80s and she she's the one that came home uh as the the recycle police that got us to recycle i mean mm-hmm. those transforming moments that that uh you know that really transform society and, and i think right. we're missing a lot of those and, and we got to figure out how to capitalize mm-hmm. the so so Go here's ahead, the thing the on that um the sputnik moment uh, sorry about that ringing in the background. It's another phone. The but I'm good with you. That's okay, man. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> uh, so uh, in Obama's State of the Union speech, he commented that the uh, we have a new Sputnik moment. He was commenting on on the uh, that our economy is in a bad shape and China is eating our lunch. And so he then said this Sputnik moment and commented on how we responded in the 1960s to that Sputnik moment. He says, for this Sputnik moment, I, have, I propose the following. And then he gave the list, and it was like, no, no, that's not a Sputnik response. He said, we should have high-speed rail by 2025 and high-speed Internet by 2030 and, and energy independence by 20. And I'm thinking, we should have that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about wasted Sputnik moments. Don't, don't, don't pretend like you, this is what you need to give me that. I'm sorry. So, it should be, here, here's the Sputnik moment. We're going to Saturn, okay? That's, now you're talking. So t- talk about, about, about in, leading off from that, what, what you said to um, the – what your testimony was to the U.S. Congress. And as I understand from what I've read, it was kind of no holds barred. You said what you thought needed to be done to make this work. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So, so the book, uh, Space Chronicles, the opening chapter is called Space Politics. And that chapter was excerpted and became the cover article for Foreign Affairs magazine. Now, that's right. not my journal. I mean, I'm a scientist and I publish elsewhere. But policy people read that journal all around the world. And apparently a copy of that lands in the lap of every member of Congress as soon as it comes out. And it's a, I think it's a two-month issue date. So it came out right when the book came out. And within two days of that, I get an invitation to testify in front of the Senate about uh, our future in space. And so I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And so I go, and there's three senators out of, I think, a dozen committee members. This is the Committee on Commerce, Transportation, and Science. So I was disappointed with how many committee members showed up. But then I realized, no, I don't, I'm not, this message is not for Congress. This message is for the electorate, mm-hmm. because it's the, the Congress works for us, right? Right. So, so if, if my efforts here do anything, they should compel the electorate 
to compel their elected leaders. So it turns out there was a camera, C-SPAN wasn't there, but there was a camera that recorded it, and it's now posted on YouTube. And it has very warm responses from people. Within a few days, it had several hundred thousand views. So I was very heartened by the response. And I've just said we, we forgot how to dream. In the 1960s, we dreamed, and it was about tomorrow and what role technology would play, a lot of what we've discussed in this phone call, and that the you have to view space not as a handout each year, but as a fundamental investment in the future of our nation. And that's the summary of my five minutes of commentary. But uh, that's, that's what it was, and, and people resonated deeply with it. I mean, what do you think the, our future will be in this country without a serious space program? I mean, That's exactly the right question, because so often we say, what will happen if we do it? The, the, the better question is, what, what happens if we don't? Right. And the, in economics, they call it the opportunity cost. The cost of not doing something is huge, unless you can figure out some other way to stoke the economy. So here's what they do. They say, oh, the jobs are going overseas. I have a solution. Let's put tariffs on that on what they're making, and let's give tax incentives. And that's a Band-Aid. That's, oh, yeah, kids aren't going into science? Oh, let's train science teachers, make better. That's another Band-Aid. So here's what happens. If you go into space in a big way, and we have huge discoveries writ large across the headlines, people will see the value of science and engineering and technology and math. They will, kids will want to enter those fields because it's exciting and it's fun and, and the media is talking about it. And TV shows will reference it. Then you, you stimulate an innovation culture. And what happens? Those people, they innovate as they get older, whether or not they're involved in the space field. We have an innovation nation. And innovation are the engines of tomorrow's economies. So if you innovate, now you have a factory that's building something that you just innovated. Your jobs can't go overseas because they haven't figured out how to do it yet. <laughs> and, the, and you don't need programs to convince kids that science is interesting because the interesting science discoveries are writ large in the daily newspapers. In fact, you might even have to beat them back. Not only that, even if you're not in the STEM fields themselves, let's say you're a producer, then you might produce a TV show that's related to the science of the cosmos. You, if you're an artist, you might be inspired by cosmic themes. If you're a, 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 a journalist, you might write more articles on what those stories are doing. Everybody becomes a participant when you're an innovation nation. And I know of no force as potent as that of space exploration. When you're advancing a frontier, you've got to invent and innovate every day you're out there. Let me return to the phones. I have a few more questions. I really want to get to this new cosmos coming up uh, and talk about uh, uh, intelligent design and the things that you've written about in this book. 410-319-8888. But let's go to the phones first and on longest. Chris in Woodlawn, you're on the air. Hello? Hi, Chris. You're on the air. Welcome. Good evening, gentlemen. My statement is um, I applaud your work. And as a Fordham prep kid from Southern Boulevard myself, <laughs> who spent a lot of time in the planetary. Oh, excellent. In the Museum of Natural History where I took classes on Saturday morning dissecting sharks. Now, what you're not telling me is whether you, you, you had your first kiss in the back row of the planet. <laughs> Actually, it was right there by the bathroom before you go into the uh, But anyway, I, 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 what, what you were saying about that, well, my question, and I just want to go back, my question to you is, 
I have a six-year-old daughter, and I live here in Baltimore now. And I've made it my business to take her back to the Bronx Zoo, where I, I the classes there also. I, I was always into biology. How do I turn it from interest into action? Because you can interest the kid, and, and, and that's what I'm trying to do. But I want to make sure I get it, get her interested enough to want to follow up on it on on her own to continue. Oh, that's, the, um, that's an excellent and important point because I think what you don't want to do is force them into anything because then then the, the the consequence of that can be just total rejection of any of your advice at all. And I can tell you what my parents did, which is similar to what you're doing, but there's a little, little extra twist. Uh, I, I'm three siblings, and so uh, my parents, every weekend, I grew up in New York City, Every essentially every weekend, we went on some trip to some one cultural institution or another. It was the zoo. It was the art museum. It was the Museum of Natural History. It was the planetarium. And then we did other things. We went to ball games, a baseball game, a hockey game, a football game, the opera, Broadway plays, Broadway musicals. And we just continued this. And what this amounted to was a persistent exposure to all the things adults do at, that, that earn income, things, professions. It wasn't just the, the, the policeman, fireman, Indian chief. It was all the rest of what goes on out here. And it was simply exposure. It wasn't here you need to be interested in this. It's just check out what they do. And what happened over the years is the, these, this exposure distilled into – things that I took interest in, things that my brother took interest in, things that my sister took interest in, that was, was self-driven at that point. And, and the seeds were planted, and we then pursued those interests. My brother was especially interested in the art museums. He's now an artist. And my sister now is a, is a corporate executive, but she, was, she, she saw all of how this functioned and how it operated and how it um, uh, and took it all in the total package of what the, what the free market uh, economy is all about. And so, and for me, it was my first visit to the Hayden Planetarium. And we all remember our first visit to a, planet, a planetarium, no matter the city. But for me, it struck, uh, I was starstruck so that it became my career. And so, so I, I think you can't force it. Just keep the exposure coming. And at some point, something will click. And then you, then you nurture that. And uh, that's what I recommend. Chris, thanks so much for your call. And I, I, one thing I remember you said also, uh, in, my, in this book, something else I saw that you wrote, uh, where you said one of the things you have to do with your children is just get out of the way. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> your parents say, what do I do to help my kids get interested in science? Well, they're already curious about the natural world, and you're probably in their way, so just get out of their way. All right? And, in fact, a, a, a more severe exchange I would have is, not only in the way, you're probably the problem. <laughs> adults run the world. And, you know, and, and how many adults have come to me to say they want their kids to be science literate when it's the science illiterate adults that are making decisions about the future of science in this country? So, that, so I, I, I basically focus on adults. You know, they you outnumber know. kids. They wield resources. They're the ones who, start, who made all the problems. Speaking of that, and you're later in the book, in your chapter um, called America and the Emergent Space Powers, you have this wonderful little riff about your jury duty, which I just loved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I try to be a good citizen, and I get called for jury duty. In fact, right now I have a letter that's probably I haven't opened for a couple of weeks because I'm behind on my snail mail. But, yeah, you know, every three years you get asked. And so, 
and I dutifully I get dressed up and put on my tie, and I show up at the courtroom, and they say, well, "What's your profession?" I say, "I'm an astrophysicist." And then five minutes later, I'm back on the street. You know, they they don't want people <laughs> who know how to analyze data. All right. Apparently, that's not what the legal system is about. No, we don't. We don't. We don't. We don't want to do that. We don't make a mistake. We don't want to make a mistake. But you. We want to make sure. Yeah, we want to make sure that the lawyer can influence you emotionally, because the truth doesn't matter as much as their capacity to make an argument. And so. So that's that's upsetting right there, you know. So, uh, but you, you but you go on in that chapter to talk about another area of fuzzy thinking you write out there at this moment. That's right. It's a fuzz, whole fuzzy thinking riff. Right, right. Is this intelligent design? Mm-hmm. Right, and you go into that. So I and and that is part of the kind of anti-science and anti-intellectualism that's kind of taking hold. Well, so the thing is, so it's not fuzzy thinking to think that there is intelligent design. Right. Okay. Many religious people feel this way. Right. That, that itself is not fuzzy thinking. What's fuzzy thinking is if you think that's science. Okay. Right. <laughs> it is not <laughs> science. Okay. So, so this, so it is our, the public's understanding of what science is and how it works. When that gets compromised or corrupted, then there is no hope for tomorrow's economy because the engines of tomorrow's economy will come from innovations in science and technology. And if you want to put something that is not science in the science classroom, which is a um, uh, uh, science classroom is a place where you learn about what scientists do. And if, 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 you're gonna, if you're going to undermine that, and by the way, school curricula are determined locally, not federally. Right. So you could... You could create a school board and vote this stuff in if that's what you chose, okay? And in a free country, I suppose you have the right to do that. All I'm trying to do is alert you of the consequences of that. And no one wants to die, and especially in this country, no one wants to die poor. And if you don't recognize the significance of, and the role of science and engineering in the economic health of the nation, then you are doomed to reverse back, to regress back into the cave. That's where we're going to wind up as the rest of the world passes us by. Let me go back to the phones before I come back to my own questions. For we have eight minutes left in the hour with uh, with uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the book Space Chronicles: Facing the Ultimate Frontier. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight is the number here. And Mike, you're on the air. Yes, Dr. Tyson. Uh, as far as your last comment goes about fuzzy thinking and intelligence design, and as much as people might think that's the way to to scientifically understand the world better, my question is this: Was the like of Isaac Newton, fuzzy thinking. How about uh, Francis Bacon? The, the fact is that if you look at the history of science, the, uh, most of the uh, scientists that science began uh, after the uh, uh, Middle Ages were people who thoroughly and, and uh, devoutly believed in the creator behind all of this. My question to call in was about the likes of Carl Sagan, how you could explain a person like him who could be so bright, so uh, much of a genius as far as astrophysics are concerned, and yet not notice that God created the universe. Wouldn't you agree, Dr. Tyson, that children, if they're going to be interested in science, before they do so, should have a thorough uh, uh, background in the religious uh, thinking so that they know that when they see the the absolute harmony and, and the orchestration of the universe, they ask the question, who created these? Otherwise, they wouldn't even notice. Because they'd be so jaded, they think that it all happened by chance. All right. Mike, thanks for your call. Okay. Bye. So, uh, first of all, uh, before, I would say, the mid-1700s, essentially every person in society, essentially every person 
in society and culture had some religious affiliation. The concept of atheism was was very was not wasn't really there. Uh, the, sort of the modern atheist uh, efforts uh, started like in the mid 1700s and went on from there. And then when Darwin uh, recognized the uh, evolution, uh, more sort of joined that bandwagon. So uh, Isaac Newton predates the mid 1700s, and so he was a deeply religious man. And in fact, he wrote more on about religion than he did about physics. Right. So in terms of his total output. Um, in his writings, however, they're not mixed. He knew what was science and what was religion. That's my only point that I was making earlier. Uh, and so you have to know what one is and what one isn't, because they are not the same as each other. And so, so, the, so first, so, so the issue is not who's religious and who isn't. It's what is science and what is not science. That's all, I'm ta- that's all I'm referencing here. And so if you want to teach someone religion, there's plenty of occasions to do that, and that's what Sunday school is for or uh, in other faiths, you know, synagogue or, 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 you know, temple, whatever it is people do, they do it. And so and the state will not stop you because we live in a country where you have freedom to express your religion. Um, that does not mean that your religion belongs in the science classroom. So uh, that's first. Second, uh, people already take kids to church, so uh, why, why that conversation doesn't have to be had with me? Um, that's that already happens. So I don't I, I don't know what the concern is there. The about the there being order in the universe and the majesty of the universe uh, that is nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, the universe is a dangerous, violent, deadly place, and Earth is dangerous, violent, and deadly. of all species of life there ever were on Earth are now extinct. And so the uh, the violence that Earth wreaks upon nature is extraordinary and very high energy. And just look at, for example, we we lost a half a million people in the last seven years uh, to earthquakes in Haiti and in um, uh, the Indonesian tsunami. And so look at all the ways Earth is trying to kill us. And to say, well, there's a harmony and a beauty, show children the handiwork of God. If you're honest about that, and you want to ascribe nature to God, then you need to show all the ways Earth is killing us. Earth and other sort of biological hazards. And that is the total picture of what's out there, and that is what is revealed when you actually study it. So... um, uh, but like I said, we, we live in a free country, and we're, we're religiously pluralistic, we're politically pluralistic, or at least we tell ourselves that. And so no one will stop you from educating your children, in the, for, from um, uh, raising your children as uh, religious kids. I mean, that's, that's fine. But uh, the science classroom, if you believe that you get science from your religion, you will undermine the capacity of your children to ever participate on the research frontier of science, because the two do not mix, and they have actually never mixed uh, successfully. People have attempted that. It's not through any short, not through any uh, shortage of efforts to try. Uh, the, Isaac Newton tried, uh, and he realized clearly that they did not mix, and so he kept them separate. His religious writings are fundamentally different in tone and in nature and in style and in structure than his physics writings. 
great answer to that question. Thank you. Um, uh, we'll try to get another caller here if we can, but I have a quick question, then we get to try to, we only have like three or four minutes left. Um, oh, okay. But, but the, you're, you're, you're taking over where Carl Sagan left off with Cosmos, but you're putting it on Fox, which I find interesting, as the station is kind of the biggest climate change denier on the, uh, in the media, and Cosmos is going to be, your Cosmos is going to be on Fox. Well, so first of all, isn't that a good reason then to be on? Might be, yeah. <laughs> so first of all, so, so, so zap. There you go. <laughs> Next question. Okay. Um, but uh, secondly, most people who who, who pass severe uh, judgment on Fox are are generally referencing Fox News, right? Not Fox Sports. We all watch Fox Sports and Fox Dramas, which include sort of House and. That's true. And that's that's right. Twenty-four for a long time, and Fringe, and and Fox is the number one show on television, and in in American Idol, uh, Fox is also 20th Century Fox that brought uh, uh, Avatar to the screen, and Fox Light Pictures that brought Slumdog Millionaire. So Fox is a is a multivariate uh, enterprise, and uh, Fox also has the sort of the liberal acerbic commentary from The Simpsons and Family Guy. So so it is. It, Fox has more. American demographic streets passing through it than any other <laughs> network that I know. I mean, so uh, I, I think of no better venue to put uh, Cosmos uh, as we redo it than yeah, on Fox. Yeah, for one of a better term, amen. <laughs> 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 uh, amen. I think it tra- amen translates to so be it. So, yeah, yeah. so be it, right? <laughs> amen. And we can do it. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and then after it's on, we say hallelujah. <laughs> That's it, right. Hallelujah, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson on Fox. So, <laughs> Cosmos relives. So it's, it's, it's probably spring 2014 is what the timetable has for it now. Well, we look forward to it. I look forward to it. Yeah, but, well, thank you. Thank you for that. And I really appreciate you taking the, appreciate you taking the hour with us here, uh, Neil. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. Neil deGrasse Tyson, his new book, Space Chronicles. Uh, and we'll be uh, hopefully have to talk to you again. Okay, excellent. Thanks a lot. Take care. Take care. Bye. Folks, thanks for tuning in and writing in. Hope we couldn't get to all the callers. Apologize, got to as many as we could. Uh, and, and appreciate you all writing and listening to this very important hour we just had with Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. The book again, Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our assistant producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlikar. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our theme music is by Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. Please send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. Podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Please visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. Your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, a voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>